Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are these new Puritans to talk about how they recorded and produced the album Inside the Rose. These new Puritans are an experimental art rock duo from Southend-on-Sea, consisting of twin brothers George and Jack Barnett. Within the band, George covers the electronics and drums, while Jack is the lead vocalist, a multi-instrumentalist, and the group's principal songwriter. The brothers were drawn to music as children when they began performing together using drums, guitars and karaoke microphones bought from charity shops, eventually forming what would go on to become these new Puritans with friends Thomas Hine on bass and Sophie Slade-Johnson on synths. Their debut EP, now Pluvial, was released in 2006 and gained attention for its truly individual sound. This was followed by their debut album, Beat Pyramid, released in 2008 on Domino and Angular Records with producer Gareth Jones. The band's sonic palette continued to broaden with the release of their second album, Hidden, in 2010, produced by Graham Sutton and frontman Jack. The album saw Jack specifically learning to notate music in order to score parts for orchestra, brass and woodwind. They released a further two studio albums, one live album and most recently a compilation, The Cut, featuring new and reworked music as well as orchestral interludes and a variety of collaborations. Hailed as strikingly modern yet simultaneously timeless, these new Puritans have developed their live performance beyond the traditional rock format to incorporate all the elements they have used in their music alongside a rich visual aspect that has been showcased at world-renowned theatres such as the Barbican in London. Today, I'm here at Iguana Studios with Jack and George Barnett to talk about how Inside the Rose was recorded and produced. And what better way to start that conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is Beyond Black Suns. It is Beyond Black Suns, these new Puritans from Inside the Rose, and I'm pleased to say that I have George and Jack Barnett here in Iguana Studios in Brixton to talk about how they created Inside the Rose. Great to see you both. Yeah, Hi. great to How's see you. I guess we need to say, so George, you speak into that microphone, we'll get an idea of what you sound like. Did you oh, have any breakfast? I did, you know, I skipped breakfast this morning. I had a few beverages last night. Right. So, no, oh, I was saying that I did actually have two pieces of toast one with marmite, one with peanut butter. It's fascinating. Jack, yeah, yeah, it is. It's an this insight. Is, and Jack, is... did you get any breakfast this morning? Uh, yeah, a couple of Weetabix. Right. Yeah. Oh, good. My he's standard. Always been, yeah. He's always been big on Weetabix, hasn't yeah. he? That's good. Man and boy. But I do think, do they make your insights into concrete? That was always my thought. <laughs> 
So Inside the Rose, I mean, it's now been out for a while and um, it's got quite a fascinating uh, gestation, I think, over quite a period of time. And you went to quite a few different places in that it was recorded in Southend, Berlin and London, in effect. Yeah. And so, you know, you know how they have T-shirts with different cities <laughs> on three different yeah. cities. And maybe that could become a, a piece of merchandise. It's not for a bad idea. But it would be great to find out how it all arrived. So, I mean, in, Infinity Vibraphones is the first song that we were going to dig into. Um, and you were just saying, Jack, that this actually started way back in 2011. Yeah, so the the first sort of musical material that began this song was from a live version of another song called Infinity, which is from our, our first album. And in 2011 or 2012, we, we did a... Um, a live version of this, we, we were playing with two vibraphonists and two bass trombonists as sort of an extension oh, to yeah. our band. It's so, coming back to me. Yeah. And so when we did that, as is the case all the time with every time we play live, you kind of have to reinvent the songs. So I did a version of that using those instruments. And it had this um, particular vibraphone rhythm, which uh, maybe I'll play it to you. Yeah, this is great. So, so this would be a recording of a live performance of Infinity from Beat Pyramid back in... Well, well this is just the original rough sketch in using like rubbish sounds. It's from just like GM MIDI sounds of this song Infinity. So I did that in the first verse, and then at the very end, you get the actual rhythm uh, with this kind of phasing rhythm. Right, so that was a sketch rewriting the track Infinity yeah. to then show these extra musicians who are going to help perform Infinity in a particular situation in Japan. You would have scored it as well. Yeah, you? so I would have just scored that up and that's just like these standard sound when you say export audio, that's what it comes out with. Right, okay, oh wow. So then you actually got these other musicians to perform that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point actually. We've played loads of music where it's literally just been played live. Yeah. We? There was no recording of that. That song never came out. It just, we played it probably yeah. on a tour for about a year or something. What, with four bass trombones? Well, and that tour, I think we did a whole tour like that. But yeah, four bass trombones, two vibraphonists. It was really, really good. Not that dissimilar of what we're going to do at the Barbican, is it really? No. And are there recordings of that format of the band? There is like a very rough thing. I just got this off YouTube. It's just like from a festival, a Polish festival, where someone recorded it. We did the same thing with motors, well, didn't we? We did it with... Uh, yeah, with two I car mean, engines yeah. on stage playing, playing pictures. Variations. Where, where's this live recording again? Um, I think it's from uh, Gdansk, right, in Poland. And you've taken this from a YouTube yeah. clip that somebody else in the audience had. Yeah, it's had just someone done. on their phone. On their phone. <laughs> I love this. This is like, a I thought there was a clap in it. Come on, George, come in the right place. I need to have. 
I accidentally played that at one of the shows we did this year because I somehow my brain doesn't work in a linear way. So I was like, oh, what's the drum beat to Infinity Vibraphones? Like, I started playing that. He had a glitch and started playing a drum beat from whatever. <laughs> a little malfunction. Well, I'll play more of this and, and I'm sure there's some bits that are more interesting than others, but I don't know where we got the idea that it was a good to play a completely new song. We even we didn't know what was happening in it. I like this bit. At a festival. So how many in the band at that point then? If you, that's, this is a lot of people. This uh, might just be two bass trombones though, is it? I think four? it was two. It was almost always two, yeah. Right. It was me, Tom, George, like original members, plus yeah. two vibraphones, yeah. two trom bass trombones. So that's more or less the same as in, in the song now. So this ended up being the beginning of Infinity Vibraphones. Yeah, so this well, this section is kind of towards the end of the song. Mm. But um, so then actually to go back a bit before that, there was this, which was like taking those rhythms from the original Infinity and then building a song out of those rhythms, which is like something like this. And this is just a rough demo of it for two pianos. Is this performed by you or played by you? This or is, is just again, like a, a you, you a write the score, sketch. then you get the computer to play it. Is yeah, it? effectively, it's like Sibelius. It's, is this it's, not? Yeah, it's this. It's a bit of Sophocles Sibelius. It's like it's yeah. the kind of industry standard. Yeah. But at the end of that, that's great. It's quite that's handy, song. though, isn't it? You no, know, because <laughs> it is and it isn't because it's um, very, very rudimentary mm. and it doesn't play back like eighty percent of the information you're putting into the score. It doesn't really play back. So if you have sort of the bluster to just do it, which is what we had with a combination of just the conviction and ignorance, then it can sometimes work and it can sometimes doesn't work. But um, gradually we've got better at minimising the ignorance part of that equation. So yeah, so, so effectively that pattern, that vibraphone pattern became like the basis for the song and then everything was extrapolated from there. And then um, one of this is just one of the many different variations that came from that. So this is the demo of Infinity Vibraphones. Yeah, this is getting closer and closer to yeah. the eventual song. Actually, listening back to it, I kind of think, why didn't we use this? Yeah, it's almost better, isn't it? is effectively the song as it came to be. Did the song get completed in Berlin, in in the studio that you were using there? Because you went to live in Berlin for a little while, didn't you? Yeah. Um, mainly to work on this album and record this album, and you ended up using a, a former broadcast studio in East Berlin, is that correct? Yeah. Jack went out to Berlin. You, I mean, you lived in an amazing place. You lived in the art gallery right in the middle of Berlin, like the central business district zone, mm. right? Yeah, with a friend of George's who, who had um, this art gallery space. And it was this kind of former office block, so I was living in a sort of office quarters. But bizarre to walk out at night, you know, just, there's nobody there because it's, is there? 
No, there's just like empty tourists, Japanese tourists and stuff, and that's about it really. Because it's right next to the Deutsche Dome and all this kind of thing. And it's actually the exact spot where the Berlin Wall was is where this building was. And this building that I was in was built in order that the people in East Berlin couldn't see the news being projected because there was this, this building where they would project the news in like uh, neon. And so this building was built to block people's sight lines for that, apparently. So yeah, we went out there. I went, well, I went out there and... Um, we drove out there, which was interesting. Yeah, we drove 12 hours from Southend to Berlin. Presumably because you wanted to take lots of stuff. Yeah, with yeah. You. Yeah, a fair amount of stuff. But we've, nev- we've never really been a gear band, A, because we've never had the money to get tons of gear. And also, I just think it's a bit of a distraction from the music sometimes. But so we drove out there, we, we kind of set up a new headquarters there in this old DDR radio play studio. So it's where propaganda and radio plays and all this kind of thing would be. Fake staircases and stuff for stomping up and down. Yeah, it's in a quite an atmospheric shows. place to be. And also we had, we had studios in various places because they were starting to renovate this building as we were there. So every time we set up, we could work there for about two weeks. And then gradually the sound of people like bulldozing and building work would get closer and closer. So then we'd have to move somewhere else. Right. And we also, we, we based, stayed within that building. Yeah, or, and we, yeah. we also went to the building next door, which is like this old derelict building where they would um, train attack dogs. That's where, <laughs> so in the daytime, you'd see these guys with like a lot of chains with big dogs on and they'd be there and you'd hear them barking. So I used to work at night to avoid all that noise. So right. I'd come around. So I'd come on the tram with all like the power station workers because there's a coal power station right there as well. And there's so. Did you get a chance to go down the mines? And then you'd hear the dog sparking, and then that's that's my cue to stop. (laughs) He sounds like... (laughs) It's like most people hear the birds tweeting and think, oh, it's time to get up. In this time, you wouldn't expect that to be... Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like People talk about the gentrification of Berlin, but ultimately that's that's like a five-mile radius in the middle. It's quite a small place. I would go out to the outskirts, and people who I know from Berlin wouldn't even know what this place was. But it's interesting. It's nice. It's not so different from South End, really. It's like... It was very stimulation all the time, being around there. Yeah, nice bit of place. light industry, heavy industry. Yeah, we always we tend to always work in light industrial. That's our favoured environment. <laughs> you were working there on your own, Jack, or when did George? I was in get, and out. Yeah. yeah, as I said, so my, Jack was living in my mate's place in the gallery. I would go out like long weekends or a week. At one point, Jack was... Long weekend makes it sound very romantic. (laughs) (laughs) River boating. It's actually by the River Studio. You did do a bit of boating, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I pedaloed quite a bit. Bags of ecstasy and pedalos. I think actually you being in England was beneficial because... I can't stand the sight of you. No, no, really. No, because... Um, <laughs> you should have really gone with that. <laughs> because it meant we were more focused in the time we were together. It meant there was, you know, you had to work on the music and you got things done a lot more quickly. Yeah. And you'd been in your own little world doing the things and then coming together. It's like, oh, I have done this, I've done this. Yes, let's go. It's good. But then we had some, like, for the first time ever in uh, These New Puritans, apart from the first record, it's the first time we ever jammed. Or do you call it jam, like the inaugural jam session? The jam session. Mm. Uh, do you remember that? And then we thought Jack had had a stroke actually from jamming, but he, he we did call the ambulance and he did go to the stroke just, unit. Yeah, but uh, never it was again. Else. Found never to jam. <laughs> yeah. That's the true. I mean, it's a, it's a true story. We That's had more great, truth in it than you might. We imagine. had uh, to Tom Hine. He's now a doctor of neuroscience or something. Well, he is that. Our 
founding member of TMP, and Graham Sutton and me and Jack produced, Bra- Graham Sutton of Bark Psychosis, so co-producer of most of our other albums. And Boy Morang, my favourite drum, drum and bass. bass. So us lot got together to do some jamming, is that what you're saying? Yeah, we got together to do and, some and jamming. And this was in Berlin. Partway yeah. through, such mirth and stress would be caused, mainly by myself, that uh, Jack had what we thought was a stroke, Thank fuck it wasn't a stroke. Let's just call it a funny turn. Yeah, a funny turn. That's what and I'm then, call it. I mean, not the first hospital visit that uh, these appearance recording session has caused. Yeah, I was, <laughs> right. You so. know, I was like, oh god, this could be good if he's on the way out on this album. This could be our uh, moment. As uh, I was speaking to uh, you were going Peter for the Savile, release, were you? I, but I bumped into Peter Savile, and yeah, he he was saying, you know, that was the reason for that album being such a big one. Maybe I should have topped Jack, and that would have. Uh, <laughs> As always next time. Yeah, should have just turfed you in the river when you're having your experience. So having sketched out the progression of the song using Sibelius and scoring things on the computer, yeah. then what, what? when you're in the studio or the this studio that kept moving, but you're in various different spaces, hooking up with the two of you or more people to, to jam or record particular instruments, mm. how is the song and the recording evolving then in the way that you were doing it because obviously you were making quite a lot of progress just by scoring it with Sibelius. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, like, with our stuff, when we come to record it, we have an absolute blueprint down to the last second of what we're going to record. There's not really any other way of doing it with this kind of stuff, with the classical instrumentation, which is really the basis of it. Every penny counts. Yeah, so so therefore Mm. you have to be very efficient and so you have to know every second inside out. So there's no, yeah, you have to be streamlined and there's no sort of decadent rock and roll recording sessions where you're jamming around. It's just, okay, we're doing it. It's like a military operation and it's planned down to the minute. So we have that and we have that framework and we record that. And that's all done. Almost all of the album is recorded in about three days. All of the brass strings, a large part of the instrumentation really. So um, and uh, who was doing that and with who? Oh, and we had an absolutely so, phenomenal conductor, Andre Derrida, who has an ensemble called Stargaze. I think we did one day of two days of strings, one day of oh, it's just two yeah, days. one day, two days of strings, one day of brass. Yeah, and Andre, we've worked with Andre since Hidden. Oh no, since Hidden Live. Yeah, yeah. So that's back in two thousand and ten. He has a great understand. Yeah, he has a great understanding of uh, music. You can just. Germany, well, it? it's just the thing is every conductor has a great understanding of music, but it's having the right sensibility. Because I used to have this idea that kind of classical musicians, I just assumed they were like gods that could do anything. But actually, they've just got just as many flaws as any other musician. And it's all about your intention and your conviction and how much you believe in the music. So the great thing about Andre is he could put together an ensemble that would give their attention, their real attention to the music. Because we were used to, on our very first classical recording sessions we did because I taught myself how to write scores and stuff for Hidden which is our second album and we encountered a kind of like a sort of snobbery where musicians would turn up and assume it was going to be like a kind of pop session and assume it would be like Easy Street we're going to sit here oh great it'll be easy and then very quickly there is it wasn't and it was quite difficult music to perform so then we we realised that it's really important to get the right people and Mm. so Andre facilitated that and you've brought in with you, Jack, um, the score yeah. for the whole album, but also for other songs as well, which looks really amazing. And it's um... So, I mean, that's the thing, because <coughs> although when I think probably the impression can be given that it's like a big operation because there's all these strings, brass and other sounds and things on this, but it's very DIY. Like most of the time, it's just me and George, really. Like 
the score, that's a lot of work to put together a score that's performable and will not take a lot of time to have to make adjustments to. Yeah, that's the thing about being in these new Puritans is people, you know, it's a difficult sell anyway, but it is DIY and that's something I think people just don't realise. Yeah, and that's why it takes a long time because to, to put together just that score is like, it's a lot of work, just in terms of hours, you know. Mm. Yeah. Whether there's any value musically is another question, but like, so in terms of like brute force, it yeah. just takes a long time. Yeah. So at what point do you know when you're ready to get the musicians in and record them? So, you know, all this time spent in Berlin working mm. on the music, um, it isn't as if you're necessarily searching for sounds. A lot of the sounds that you've got are all in, Jack's in, head. in your mind, yeah, mm. in your head, and you're working them out and you're using George to help you work them out. Yeah. So is the, is the whole thing scored out like this and then played by other people or does it return to, you know, the couple There's of, a lot of brothers editing. done in you know, making music in a shed in, <laughs> in mm. South End? Uh, so there's obviously the whole part that's like the chaos of writing music, first of all, and that happens. But then there's the structuring where you have to get the score together to get people to play it. Um, actually, the one thing that we did have this time round, which we've never really had before, was time afterwards to kind of deconstruct that and start adapting the sounds, spending more time on the texture of the sounds and finding different sounds to fulfill certain parts and tearing it apart again. So we did that as well, not in studios, just in a bedroom recording effectively, yeah. you know. Because I think, I mean, there's so many of these uh, conversations for tape notes, you mm. know, rather than use um, all these musicians who play the music that you've written out, they will be using various different synths and mellotrons mm. to try and create those sounds. And they're, you know, it's a trial and error mm. type it's approach. True. It's true. Sometimes with that approach, though, I think it's a very different thing, I think. If you've got a really specific idea and you're putting it down on paper, that's totally different from fiddling. But then did we do any fiddling on this record? I suppose we did. Yeah, well, it's maintaining the balance, isn't it? Because if you completely swept up in your own intentions and your own great powers, then... A lot of the time you're missing all, a lot of the good stuff that might come your way and the things mm. that come to you by chance. So, yeah, it's a balance between those two things. Mm. And so how did Infinity Vibraphones progress then? So we've heard the sketch for a score to perform Infinity live, then that mutated into um, another section that mm. became the essence of Infinity section. Vibraphones. Yeah, it sounded great. And then obviously there are singers on the song as well. You know, you've got a few different voices on there. Yes. So, I mean, when you go and record all your musicians um, with your Stargaze conductor, are the vocals added after that? And then when they sing, do they hear the finished track? With this one, it had various vocals, but we essentially recorded the music first and then the vocals came afterwards. But this actually had a whole separate vocal part, which is not on the song. I went to Portugal and recorded with Elisa Rodriguez, who's recorded with us, she's great jazz singer with influences of Fado music as well in her sound. And so I went um, to a place called the Valley of the Wolves. That sounds dramatic. Yeah. And um, so we recorded there um, near Sintra. And she, she did a whole vocal part. You then effectively said, that's rubbish. You should Don't sing. put me under the bus. <laughs> no, here, but you're totally right. <laughs> Listen to this. But you're, you're absolutely right. It just wasn't, it's nothing to do with her. It's just more that the part that I wrote wasn't very good, I think. Yeah. And, and it was much better eventually when it was just more led by my voice. But there's kind of vestiges of her part are still in there. She's like this uh, sort of commentator on events within the song as well. So she's still That's there. That's a very a poetic way of saying it. Yeah. I, I also like the fact that you get, I want to hear more of you always on the song. Mm. I think that was quite good because you're quite deep within this one. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? But anyway, so this is this is the unused vocal part. So yeah, there you go. It has. I think I do love that. I have to say. Oh well, you didn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what, 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 what's in its place now? I forget even. But I think Graham said something to me recently, which is that it needs the sort of grit and the pearl of my voice because the the music could be in danger of sounding too luxurious at times because it's got scored parts mm. and things. It needs Lush like it needs the it. roughness of my voice in order to sort of give it just the feeling that it has or like the. Yeah, um, that's an interesting thing, and know. it does give it the these new Puritans' identity to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, the grit and the pearl. It's a great way of describing it. So, I mean, what was Graham's role within Inside the Rose? Um, he, first of all, is a great friend. He's a great friend, and I can always just send something to him and get his opinion. But um, he helped us record the drums. Basically, he produced the drums uh, in London. We went to a studio, Assault and Battery Two. We did that, just us three. And then edited the drums, me and him edited the drums in George's house. And then we, we just carried on with the process. And then actually at the very end, he came in and did a lot of mixing adjustments, like did a lot of the vocal mixing. Mm. He's an amazing man. He's made some of my favourite records and he's just like, don't you think he's so positive, Jack? We just did a tour around Asia with him and I was wake up and have breakfast with him. I mean, one night he didn't even sleep. <laughs> he had such bad jet lag he just didn't sleep for how many hours but he was say? still enthusiastic still about enthusiastic the music the next day. <laughs> but I think also it's like um, with a lot of our albums it's not something that you could sort of dip your toe into I think a lot of the people that work on our albums either have a really great time and love it or they really hate it because it takes a certain kind of conviction and you get into a certain world a mindset that's quite different from the way a lot of albums are made and yeah, like even just the man hours that it can take. And he's willing to do that. You know, he's willing to put himself through that process and really at any cost find the music we're trying to make. And so that's such a valuable and rare thing. So that's there's that. And also he just has amazing kind of no-nonsense approach to like recording things and, and just... Uh, Great engineer as well. Just amazing understanding of sound and engineering, yeah. And was he playing with you on this um, trip? Yeah, yeah, he yeah, played so he was with part us. of the live band. Yeah, the first yeah. time I had a guitar on stage for a very long time was Graham Sutton mm. playing it. Amazing. So um, I'm just trying to get to grips with the evolution of Infinity Vibraphones. Mm. So in terms of, because so often within tape notes, we hear something from, as we've already been hearing, you know, from a, a kind of nascent demo stage or, or uh, early idea stage. Mm. Um, and then, you know, it culminates with the finished piece and the different stages we've heard so far is that it's a kind of evolution of a of a song that has come about through other necessities. So, you know, you had to come up with a new score for um, mm. a format of, of the band that was going to be doing a certain thing. So you rearrange something and then yeah. that led to another idea and then that idea led to another idea. And, and then you've got this new piece called Infinity Vibraphones. I think actually the first bit of the song, just to go back a bit, after that original vibraphone figure whatever you want to call it a motif i then kind of had these other chords these string chords idea kind of stravinsky-ish chords then i just fitted the vibraphone part to those chords and changed the pitches of the vibraphone part according to the chords which eventually became this section of the song so this is actually the recorded 
final version, but just the brass strings and vibraphone. And when you record all these parts, do you record them separately or is it one performance done at the same time? Um, well, the strings are as a group because mm. otherwise what's the point of you know getting them all together? Brass as a separate group and then right. vibraphones is later and that's, actually, that's just me playing both of those parts right. that fit together into one piece. Yeah. And in terms of the words that you then add to mm. that or, or the vocal lines, are they added afterwards or are they integral to the evolution of of the track as you're doing it for this song all the vocals came afterwards and it was a matter of just trying lots and lots of things and seeing what worked sometimes it can happen the other way around and this vocal starts something and it's very um, instinctive whereas with this it was more just let's try 10 different things then choose the best one yeah yeah and in terms of the lyrics do your vocal melody lines come first and then you weave words into them or do it because I, I find with every these new Puritans record, it's quite an immersive experience mm. and you get lost in what you're doing and you get drawn into it. And it always seems as if there's a, an overriding theme and it all interconnects. And Inside the Rose is no exception in that way. No, you kind of get you get drawn into your world. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I wonder, do the words all interlock and mean things together or are they just... They often do because the first thing I do every time... Um, I come to write the lyrics for an album is go through all of my notebooks from the point where I'm starting and then going back to when the last album ended. Everything that's interesting in it, I'll copy out. So that'll give me like six or seven sheets of A4 of interesting things and words and ideas. And then it's almost like assigning those to songs or just using that as a material if I'm just singing and improvising and then I just look at those and they're all of the starting points. So it was like the whole thing, the whole DNA of it is there ready to sort of grow uh, as I'm singing. Mm. That's interesting that, that those words could fit any particular song and you just kind of find which one works yeah, best. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm, I'm not really... It's not up... always the case though. That... No, it's, it's, it's either that or it's like um, this word start it. And very often with these songs, like some of the other songs we might talk about, is they started with the vocal and that vocal is the same. It's the first time I ever sang those words and it's, that's it. And it's finished. Mm, interesting. And so when, if we're thinking Infinity Vibraphones first started in 2011 mm. and work on this album kind of started officially in 2015. Yeah. Um, and this was the first piece that you'd started working on. When you went to Berlin, to what extent had this been fully realised to record? And when did you go to Berlin to start recording? Ooh, when was it? I think, yeah, 2015. Right, something. yeah. So was this what you had kind of... We've we got this. We can build on this. We recorded so much music, I think, thinking about it. And they whittled it down to... Yeah, I mean, we, we had... But, you know, that's... Of course, if you're going to spend a lot of time... I was thinking about working. Berlin. I was like... I just remember that. I remember completely different songs even on the album. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of songs. I mean, with, with this, it was in pretty good shape. And there were a few sections which were kind of question marks about we could change that. But um, it's like the writing takes a long time with a song like this. But actually, the recording is incredibly mm. quick. You record the strings and brass. You some of the sounds which are rough, you change, and then you kind of finish it. And then now that that's finished and recorded, and the sounds, it sounds good. How can we reinvent it a little bit? Cut things about, edit it down, and then um, 
that's kind of it done. W would you be able to build up the track then? Yeah, so this is this is the strings here. I'll be, give you the strings and the brass, the ensemble stuff. Then you got the pitch percussion. One sound that I really wanted loudly in this song is the piano. Piano that George wanted loud. I really wanted that louder. Synth, vocals. Let's go, I can so this is what eventually replaced Elisa, my vocal. And that bass part, how is that created? Um, so that's just some bog standard synth kind of thing, but we then use this method called harmonic resynthesis, which is a sort of experimental electronic technique where you take a sound and it's reconstituted as sine waves, which means you can then manipulate it in ways you couldn't if it was just like an analog recording of a sound and make some very strange sounds using it. It's, it's usually just used in sort of obscure, like electronic-y, kind of electroacoustic sound art and things like that. But it's quite good technique. It has a kind of metallic quality to it. And for the vibraphone part, I mean, when you um, assemble that, do you play for ages and ages, or do you? Because it's it's overlapping, but it's changing. It's yeah. it, and so how many takes is that? Yeah. yeah. How many, is that you just doing it three times? Um, we just go around like each section. There's a great engineer, Christian Bahler, East German guy who recorded. And uh, so we just go around each section like until I got it right, which might be once, might be five times. But, but it's, it's two vibraphone parts that interlock. So there's one that plays a particular rhythm and then there's another one that plays a particular rhythm. And then we put those two together, it kind of produces a third rhythm and a third kind of melody. Mm. Have you got those individually or not? Uh, no. You can kind of hear the, in the left is one of them and in the right is the other. Some ones. Dun, 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 and the other one is. Dun, 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 yeah. dun, dun, and then you put them together and then make a third thing. And, and when you're performing that live now, do you require two players or? Yeah, we've got. Oh, um, we have a vibraphone. Yeah, we, we yeah. did have two vibraphonists on stage, didn't we? Yeah. One on a. One electronic, one vibraphone. Yeah, they're tricky. I mean, it's the kind of rhythm where you have to play it bang in, otherwise it sounds atrocious, mm. as you may have heard in the Polish live version, where it's just like, <laughs> so sloppy. But um, when you get it in, it's, it kind of focuses and It's counterintuitive for most musicians to play, I think, isn't it? Yeah. But it's, it's really tricky because I think in, it's interesting. We're so used these days to people using loops and, and repeating things and getting... Mm. You know, finding that easy way of recreating that, whereas this is much more akin to Steve Wright, uh, you know, his composition where he'll get the musicians on stage and and then they've yeah. got to start at one point, then the next person starts at the other point, and then well, eventually they'll yeah, it's a good point. It isn't a delay pedal, is it? It's a. Uh, you know what I mean, no, I mean that's the thing because now perfection is so easy to achieve that it's lost its value. So actually, when you hear people playing instruments together, especially when it's something as almost mechanical as that, it's kind of impressive and just. Uh, more appealing to me anyway to hear. 
but yeah, obviously that that rhythm really owes a lot to Steve Reich and stuff like that. Mm. But it's taking that and then putting things around it, which you wouldn't normally associate with that kind of music. Yeah, and then putting the the grit and the pearl, as Graham described it, of your yeah. voice, which is really interesting because in so many ways, when we listen to the individual parts of of Infinity Vibraphones or any particular um, these new Puritan songs, there's so many sounds that could be used in different ways. You could create mm. something that didn't have that grit. You know, yeah. because you have created something that doesn't have that grit. You know, when you listen to those string parts mm. in isolation, you listen to the brass parts, mm. they're very beautiful. But you decide that, well, you need the grit. You, that's an essential part. Yeah, I think so. It's also just an attention span thing where if it was one thing or another, I'd just get bored quickly. So I like it to have changes that are fast and quite dramatic. You know, Is there a section of the track that we should hear that is the, the culmination of our little chat about Infinity Vibraphones that that's a good way to sign off um, well maybe my favourite section is the end section and uh, I'll just play like yeah so I'll just play the strings and the bass because I like how they sound and it's one of those things where you're writing a song and there are moments where you think oh yeah that really says something I don't know what it says but it's it feels good so here it is And so that string part is taken from one of those very first demos that we put together, just that harmony going against the, the other harmonies. And that's a standard bass guitar, well, a standard, but a particular... Yeah. What bass guitar do you favour, or do you have a few? Uh, the bass we've used and have always used is one that our older brother found in a local paper Luke. in Basildon for 20 quid, and it was covered in how, like wall paint, black wall paint. And he chipped it away, and underneath it was this beautiful Epiphone bass from the 70s. So we've always used that ever since. It's a very distinctive sound it has yeah. as well. So then, so there's these parts, then piano, guitars, drums, drums, vibraphones. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. 
pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give tape it a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off tape it pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So that's Infinity Vibraphones. Another song we were going to look at is Where the Trees Are on Fire, which in my mind, I think of it as almost a Stephen Sondheim type piece that um, it, it's another dimension of what these new Puritans do. Because I think in some ways, you know, and I know that you do perform in these kind of spaces, but the, the music and what you create lends itself to conventional theatres, conventional spaces mm. that can accommodate the kind of instruments mm. that, that you use. There's an aspect of it that seems very theatrical um, that you've realised visually in the presentation of, of the album. Yeah, this is kind of our sending the clowns. Yes. <laughs> I can imagine this. I can, yeah, essentially this song is really, this could have been written in the 50s or something, you know. There's, it's not a lot to it. It's, you know, like orchestral ballady type thing. When it's These New Puritans, the musical, this will be the, the rousing closer. Yeah. I've always wanted to do a musical, actually. I've got a whole thing about it, but yeah, I won't bore you That's with that. For another well, podcast. I hope it happens. I hope it happens. So that, yeah, I'd love it too. So this song, I mean, I think I, probably, I may have said this to you before in the last interview, the, the whole dream thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So so this song um, started as a dream. I went through a period of dreaming um, music. And so I would record it. I had a dictaphone by my bed and I'd record it. This is before I went to Berlin. This was in Westcliff in Southend. And so, um, yeah, I sort of trained myself to wake up in the night and record the musical ideas. And uh, most of the time it, it was absolute rubbish, bad sort of pop reggae or, or like kind of pub rock <laughs> and things like that but then there's a few things which were good and you would just hum these into the dictaphone yeah just yeah. and and actually this is my phone right all um, right okay, the phone sorry. took over from the dictaphone eventually and uh, so i have the original phone note oh which wow. is me singing the um the melody and if, uh, what, what it was in the dream i was walking along with an old friend of mine rory and we were walking along in along the marshes in south end in leontine in fact and we saw over the other side of the river burning. We could see that the trees, something was on fire. And then Rory said to me, look over there, there's trees are on fire. And then in the dream, the music just started up like it was a musical. And so this is what I sang. So you just took what Rory said and started singing it. Yeah, well, this this tune kind of played yeah, in the dream. The, 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 yeah, wow, it's good premonition and of now as then well. Then I kind of you can hear I go back to sleep for a sec and then turn the recorder back on. This is this is where the blood runs cold bit, and all of those lyrics are in the song, completely yeah. unchanged. The melody and so all the melody and the lyric came from the dream. Yeah. I'm amazed that you were able to <laughs> to capture that so quickly and instantly, you know, and and then turn <laughs> turn back to sleep. Yeah, well, I've lost the knack of it now. Now I don't wake up. I sometimes even sleep. dream that I've woken up and recorded it. It's almost like my brain is tricking me. No, you need to sleep. You shouldn't be working on right. music now. And so I dream that I've recorded it and yeah. and find there's nothing there. So it was a little the, golden the gold, period. The gold is not there. Yeah. It's two wow. sleeps, isn't it? We always have two sleeps. 
two sleeps. Before electric lighting, we were we lived in a land of uh, two sleeps. You'd wake up in the middle of the night. Google it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what am I thinking though? I, the lyrics to that song, I really, I think, are the probably the best thing about it. I know, I really like them, and I can say that as I feel that I didn't really write them. You know, I'm like, don't. It's not being big-headed because... You were sleepwalking at the time. He always used to sleepwalk. The night Night terrors used to have wander around, scare the living daylights out of me. Well, it's a good advantage of not sleeping very well, is you can be active 24-7. I'm sure it's healthy. Like Graham in Japan. (laughs) But I think um, it's definitely... I think the the best stuff is always when you um, lose your intentions and whatever your conscious intentions are begin to dissolve. That's always when the best things are and always the state that's closest to dreaming is the best state for making stuff up like making music making words and so uh, obviously being asleep is is the, the ultimate version of that losing any sense of self or any thing yeah well just because if, if you could have conceived of it then there's almost like what's the point of doing it you always want to go beyond yourself and beyond anything you could have imagined before you started messing about with whatever it is you're messing about with this is to go back to your you know one of the tenants of tmp what is it? You don't want to reflect the age you're in. You want to go beyond it. Yeah, and that's that's the ambition, isn't it? But whether we've done that, with us, who knows? It, you never know. So what happens next? You've got this um, recording on your phone. So yeah, so that's that. And I was quite superstitious about going in all guns blazing and writing something around it. So I waited a while, and then one morning when I woke up, I I knew I thought this is the day, and I started just messing around with trying different chords around the melody because. In the dream, I didn't have any idea of what the harmonic structure around that was. And so I just recorded myself playing a load of different chords around that melody. Hear me very falteringly yeah. trying to place them what, around. What keyboard is that? Uh, Rhodes, Rhodes, Fender Rhodes, which I love and my pride and joy. And so then from that, I just started all the bits that were good. I went through and kind of medied up so I could edit them. There's like all these different possible chords to go with it. And there's just like blocks and blocks and blocks of this. This is just intuitively thinking chords that could go with the melody. There's a lot of these files. I, I won't bore you with all of it, but there's there's you know, there's probably about an hour of just different chords that could go mm. with it. So then you've got to make the decisions about which ones yeah. you like best. I forced this one, though. Yeah, yeah. So this was, we were going to do an orchestral show later in the year, and George said, we have to play that. That's what this concert should end with. So then I was just in the position where very quickly I had to make an arrangement of that which is actually a good thing, I think, for Jack mm. sometimes, because you could... I can mess around with these variations for days and weeks, mm. whereas to have more of the pressure from George to just say, okay, yeah, that and that sounds good, and that's, that's fine, that version's good, do that, change it like this. And so really, just the song as it is now, it was just for a live version. Again, it's the live version of the song that we did. Um... We did it at the Barbican. Okay, it was at the Barbican. Yeah. But, um... but you decided to add a trumpet... Yeah, I mean, there's all those, there's trumpets, there's a lot of, uh, like, basically we wanted to just orchestrate it and make it like really big and lush sounding. 
as much as possible. So yeah, it was just a matter of taking all of these blocks and then putting them in together in some way that made sense. But yeah, so there's there's more. Uh, I'll play a bit more of like the demo because then I added the vocals more right distinctly. This was after George had suggested that we do it, so I thought, okay, I should probably finish this. Yeah. And this is all MIDI, isn't it? Yeah. Always with these sketches, there's no real intention of making it sound good. It's just like giving some impression of what mm. we think it will eventually be like. And where were you doing that? Uh, I think it was just in my house in Southend. Right. So this is pre-Berlin. Yeah. What other versions do you have of this? Well, I'm just just looking through. I mean, I don't really know what's going to come out of this until I press play. So. What Jack's leafing through is like a huge logic file, probably a few hours long, with lots of green, purple, and blue. It seems to be a signifying colours. Do you often go with that? This is where the trees are on fire. The trees are on fire. The trees are on fire. This is where the trees are on fire. The trees are on fire. Where the trees are on fire. This is one of those ones where probably if you added up all the time spent writing it, it'd be like half an hour. Yeah, and then it's just the editing is the thing that takes time. So what am I playing? I'm playing 3-4, am I? What am I playing? Um, I'm just trying to figure it out in my head. Because that so drum beat there is completely different to what we used. It's a, it's a weird thing where it's kind of 4-4, um, four, four, but it's divided up so that it's all triplets, but they're in groups of two-thirds of a triplet. So da 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 is what you play just to be as confusing as possible so I mean that would have been George just playing along no this was written no. part written for me right oh okay well yeah. that's how it was written but eventually it changed yeah you know, to... and so when you're playing the part that's written for you are you reading the music and playing that uh, or... yeah or listening and writing it down and starting slow and building from that mm. point because often yeah that's, that's really counterintuitive a lot of the rhythms that I'm given to play yeah I think I think I'd be a good drummer in the world of these new Puritans, but outside of that, it's a we it's a very unique thing. Mm. It'd probably be a relief, wouldn't it, to play other music? Yeah, if there was a f more songs that are just four four, and you could like really relax. So this is the drums. So this is the drums to the eventual song. Asleep. But it's always a case of like working through in the studio really isn't it like we have the, the guideline mm. and then it's like doing it over and over again and then saying oh that fill should go there this, or no fills until this part and then do the fill this is one take though this isn't it uh, yeah probably and is this recorded in Berlin uh, this is no. the drums are all London oh right okay. Assault and Battery Assault really and nice battery. studio right. yeah we went round every drum room in London pretty much I think we did about 10 studios we hit we? a snare in every room in London basically to get the sound you're after yeah And also just the fun of like, oh, why not visit yeah. every studio? And would you can. make that decision there and then? You know, think, nah, that's not right. Yeah, it's just, it's obvious. It's really, yeah. really obvious. It's surprising. And would it be your own snare that you'd bring to each room? Mm, no, it would be theirs. But yeah, we could. were uh, 
Does yeah. that not have a bearing on it? I mean, it does. We had a lot of sort of... Right. You know, clapping yeah. and... Graham was with us actually as well. Graham engineered and produced the drums. But like the drums are probably not really written like the other parts. They're usually... There's something very rough and then it's just in the studio usually just mm. finding what feels good. Because they always make an entrance, it seems to me. Yeah, that one there, I think, throws a few people. When that got... Well, it did, I remember... The girls behind me that were singing, the sopranos behind me, they were like, oh, what's happening? You know, why? Right. Yeah, because... They thought I was playing in There's some sort space. of multiple ways of perceiving that. You could kind of write it out a lot of different ways, kind mm. of thing. But that's what I like about it is you think it's one thing and then when the drums come in, suddenly it snaps into a different focus and, and you, the whole thing is shown in a different perspective. But yeah, it's a tricky one to play sometimes. So what should we listen to next? Should we listen to how this was fully realised? Yeah. So, so starting just with the roads playing essentially lots of the uh, harmonic variations that I tried out. Then with that strings. Brass. Maybe you can crossfade into this section or something if I stop it and then Because it's where the drums come in. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because I always think when you use the drums, because you often say, and this is an example, the drums come in quite late in the song or halfway through the song, so they kind of take on a significance. Yeah, um, yeah. I think if something's in the song from start to finish, then it may as well not be there at all. And it's a thing we've learned, yeah, probably more so in Field of Reeds, uh, the album before this is where, just to give that twist at the end where it spins off into a different world, I always mm. like that in bits of music. What's that? You mean this? Yeah. Um, it starts, it came from a road sound, but it's like pitched reverbs and pitched delays and things. See, this is more conventional in a studio, just in our room, just uh, trying out sounds, doing yeah. a lot of stuff until we find something that sounds good and editing that together. It always amazes me when we do take notes because when I hear all the sounds in isolation, you know, I, I, I'm amazed that musicians ever get anything done because it can get so lost in the sound and the world that those sounds yeah. create. Well, that's the whole motivation for doing it, really, yeah. isn't it? To, to get in that state. I feel that though, and especially with that second version of Infinity Vibraphones, I want to copy that. Just the bare, sort of minimal version. Yeah. It's nice. I mean, it's great being able to be privy to this conversation because in some ways, I mean, okay, you're, you're reacquainting yourself with the work, George. But, yeah. But it's still... I had no idea of the version of Infinity Vibraphones that was the one we played previously. I mean, because it's it's fascinating to think that you, I mean, you are still very much a part of the creative yeah. process. You're there kind of pretty much holding Jack's hand for a lot of the time. And yet there are still these surprises and still these things that you find fascinating about it. And yeah, 100%. It. 
and then he thinks he's told me everything or played me everything. I'm like, well, you haven't played me that. Like, the thing is, the there's hell? there's ten versions of that, so it's like which ones I can't. Yeah, it's be boring to play them all. <laughs> what did I have this morning? I was looking at uh, radio beat and chords. That's quite a good demo. Twenty seconds. So my phone is just full of bits of music that Jack sends me. Radio beat and chords. What the hell's that? I don't know. So th- when you're walking around and you've got headphones in, that's the kind of thing you're listening to, George? I would say it's probably 50% of my iPod is Disney appearance. This is what I mean. He's a little Purcell or what do you call him? It's, yeah, full of those kind of things. Yeah. Could go on and on. This doesn't sound like these are Puritans, does it? This, I think, has a bit of a sting, sting vibe. Yeah. Fields of gold. <laughs> Sounds great. You know, what, you know, this taste of... And when so you return to... The, I mean, do you hear these things randomly, George, or do you return to these particular things? Because I have those... playlists on my phone where it's right. like, so new demos from a certain time or different demos or... You know, it's a lot. So George is scrolling down through. Um, it's fifty-one team. songs, yeah, two fi- hours nine minutes. But I'm just wondering whether you you get to know these so well that you return to them for, for specific things. You know, if you were walking along a particular stretch of road and you thought, right, oh, you know what, I listen want to listen to now, and yeah, to, and I'm going to turn to that that nobody else would have. And Jack clearly <laughs> doesn't even remember how. I like this one. Yeah, this is a good one for walking down a road. It's already, it already sounds like uh, you're uh, slight digger or something. Mm. That's Elisa's voice, actually. All of that sound pitched, right? Big, big drums. So that's all Elisa. Yeah, it's a bits of her yeah. singing. recorded in Portugal. Uh, it's bits and bobs of yeah. all different recording sessions we've done together. I just mm. taken little bits and bits. And does she perform live with you? Uh, she did. She did in yeah, for like the Phil Reed's touring. She did. Right. She's amazing, Elisa. She's a really superb singer. Yeah, amazing. This is a nice change, lifting moment. This is interesting. So we have Jack's laptop, which has all the various different stems of all these recordings. And now we're listening to George's phone <laughs> and what he gets gets to listen to. It's my, it's my personal jukebox. Yeah, amazing. Very exciting. It's quite sparks, I think. So if Where the Trees Are On Fire is your, your Send in the Clowns moment mm. on Inside the Rose, um, we were going to look at ARP, yeah. which is six and a half minutes long. Yeah. You know, quite a different Snappy kind of... radio single. Yeah, another radio hit. We were going to open the album with this song. and I was like, yeah, you We were convinced it of it. There's a very, very uh, dubious people surrounding us about that idea. Yeah. <laughs> but you went against that idea. And instead, you put it right near the end. Yeah. And Infinity Vibraphones is the opening track. No, I mean, I'm picking up, the, I've got the CD, uh, the finished CD in front of me, and it has the booklet with all the words and information about the recording. And it's just occurred to me while I've been looking at it, while we've been talking, that it seems almost prayer book-like. It's the, it's the first half-size booklet. Yeah, and first it's interesting. First time it's been done. It, 
Really? Ever? Oh, that's what they said to me when they did that factory. Like, right. oh, I've never seen this before. Yeah. And the people at the record label like, oh, God, what have we got ourselves into here? But we made, we know, they made it happen. Yeah, they did. I mean, I mean, for me, handling it now in this way, in this context with other people in the room, and because often, you know, you look at finished product and you're, you're in your own listening space or you're doing a thing, but it just reminds me of, of like a little prayer booklet that you would get mm. out for, you know, whatever service of whatever religion, you know. If we were to take it to the east, it would be like a um, Chairman Mao's book that you'd have with you at all times. So if you needed those pearls of wisdom, Mm. you can open it up and read the words. The grit and pearls of wisdom. Yeah. (laughs) That's what it could be called. Next record. (laughs) So, I mean, we've heard one song that began from another song, in effect, that infinity. Then one song which began as a dream. ARP, how did how did this begin? Um, this started off as a thing called, just like an idea, called Fast Arpeggios and Sub. That was like the file name that I gave it. And it was just so the arpeggios that run through the whole thing. And how are you creating those? Um, they were just like software synth type mm. thing. Or sampled bits of organ, I think, eventually. And also that resynthesis method that I mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, and then t- the idea is to just have this big sub doing this rhythm. Um, like interjecting so there's contrast yeah uh, between so the, the, the title of the demo is it's pretty accurate isn't it yeah this is another one that I had on my phone and I was just driving around in a Aphex Twin window liquor style car like a white Mercedes driving around LA really fast with the volume like cranked up to complete maximum trying to scare people witless with the uh, roof down you know when the subs come in <laughs> so so then essentially there's so there's these, these big drum things and these arpeggios and then uh, I just played long chords on piano to it So this is all your demo? Uh, this is the stems, but it's right. it's essentially the same as the, the same, demo. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, so there's, they've got those chords together. And the vocal part is um, just the first take. Almost all of the vocals on this was the first time I'd sung those words, the first recording that I did. This is your complications calling. It's one of those things where so often for me, it's either first take and you have this sense of momentum and sort of um, dreaming and everything's working for you and pushing you a certain direction, or it's a lot of work. It seems to be one or the other, really. And this was one that came quite quickly. Hmm. And how do you record your vocals? Always on my own. I always just do them myself. I've always done that for all of the albums. You're close to the mic, aren't you, when you record as well? Yeah, generally... Well, actually, in previous albums, we've always gone for a very, very dry, close-to-the-mic kind of sound, but for this, we, we sort of allowed ourselves to break that rule. And so this is really sort of big sound, you know, big reverbs and stuff. And what kind of microphone were you using? Do you have one that you particularly favour? Uh, not really. I mean, 
For this, my, the mic I use is nothing special really. I think it's a sure, like a kind of sure vocal mic from a few years ago. But the, the beauty of that is I can just lug it around anywhere. I don't have to worry about it getting broken. I can take it with me and therefore I can just record anywhere. I think it's much more important to get the, um, to be able to work quickly and get sort of the um, momentum and the, rather than having a great mic, which is scared of breaking. And like, yeah. you have to have some wonderful preamp to get sounding good. I'd much rather be sort of versatile and just use any old thing really. And do, I mean, do you have any rituals around recording vocals? I mean, do you have to get yourself in a certain mindset or? Um, no, really, I think a lot of the time it's the best vocal takes like this. I think it's one of the best bits of singing I've done probably for TMP. And it's um, basically just the first take. And, and it's that when you're in a musical mindset and you're not thinking about meanings, you're not thinking about uh, intentions and you're just swept away with it. That's where all the best stuff happens for me. And everything feels right. Um, I, I could never be a vocalist where I go in with a producer and they say, okay, now sing that note slightly sharper. Now give me more expression or something like this. I, I can't, if I'm self-conscious, I just sound like crap, basically. It's got to be a real drifting feeling. Mm. And, so, and you're not thinking about meanings, but you do have specific words that you're going to be singing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think words are kind of inadequate on their own. It's how they work with the music and how the music transforms them. So it's always like a dialogue between the two and how they're shaping each other. And it has to feel right. It's not the meaning so much. It's just they have to feel right as they come out of your mouth. And so long as that's the case, then it will sound good, I've found. Yeah, and in terms of completion for ARP, what level of completion was the track when you thought, right, I'm ready to add some vocals or I need to add some vocals now? It was just as I was writing. Like yeah, right, Literally, okay. I'd sat down, we had the arpeggios going, the sub sound going. I played some chords and as I was playing the chords, I just did that vocal as it is start to finish. I think there was two takes and I comped together two takes of bits and pieces. And that is what you hear on yeah. the record. So that must be great. That sense of like realizing, ah, I've got that take. That is. Yeah. And it's almost like, I think that's, it's a good feeling. And it's, it comes like that when you're writing and recording at the same time, when there's no distance between those two things. I think if you're like, I'm writing now and recording later, you can get yourself in all kinds of trouble. I think trying to, Again, with intentions mm. and your intentions overriding your momentum. And w when you get other people to sing, do you then instruct them? Are you are you more um, yes. demanding because you have a much more specific thing that you want them to, to yeah. do? I guess I'm a hypocrite because yeah. <laughs> I demand other people like do very specific things. But then maybe they're more flexible in the sense that this is your art, yeah. this is your work, and they are putting themselves at your call. Yeah. So they might be more willing to respond to that. Yeah, it's kind of got to be that way. And I think with someone like Elisa who sings on this album, uh, she's kind of willing to go along with it and, and she knows I'm not going to put something out that sounds rubbish of hers, so she's kind of happy to go with the flow. And in terms of recording other people singing, do you have the same approach in terms of the equipment that you use or, or do you know that for Elisa we want to use a particular kind of microphone? I tend her? to just leave that all to the engineer and then I can just right. focus on the performances. Mm. It's easy to get carried away with the technical side of things but generally there's a pretty decent engineer there as long as you have kind of guiding principles about the sound for instance do you want it to sound dry and close and have detail or do you want it to sound big so long as you know that from the beginning and you're not kind of winging it then you can leave a lot of that technical stuff to like the pros yeah and then I, we can just think about how it actually sounds yeah I mean it's interesting so you went to Portugal to record Elisa's vocals um, in a particular studio or, or because obviously you know in your trip around London trying out drum sounds in various different studios trying to go 
for a particular thing that you knew you wanted, but yeah. you weren't quite sure until you heard it. Going all the way to Portugal to record Elisa and, and then kind of thinking, oh, I'll just leave it to that expert in Portugal to set well, it up. Well, I think it's because with vocals, it's very different. It's, there's a massive psychological element where people have to be comfortable. It's your body, ultimately. It's part of your body. And so it's really affected by like stress or temperature. All these things can play into someone singing well. Mm. So it's far more important. It really, but it really is. It really is. I know, I know. You're completely right. It's just when you say stuff like that, I'm like, yeah. Um, so all of these things can affect it far more than the studio. Like, I think there's a fetishization of studio gear. Maybe this is the wrong podcast to say this in, but where it's like, uh, okay, this could be the big difference between something sounding good and bad. But ultimately, the main thing is the performance, the room it's in to some extent. But even with a close mic vocal, that's not going to make that much difference. And then way, way back behind that is like microphone. And then beyond that, like far in the distance is like compressors and all this kind of stuff, which are just, to me, is not going to make or break the sound of it. Mm. But they are still relevant in the sense that you, you love your Fender Rhodes. You know, you, oh, yeah. you, you want to oh, use that. But yeah, I guess yeah. you've also got to, if you're making an album, you've got to kind of prioritise one thing over another. If mm. you're thinking about everything all the time, then you're not going to end up with, you know, it's going to be a mess. Yeah. Yeah, no, but it's, I mean, that's the point of having this conversation is to find yeah. out your set yeah. of priorities, your set yeah, he's of very approaches. particular, is Jack. Yeah, but it's, in, it's interesting. Yeah, no, you know, but we do use a lot, of, but there's, there's a lot of unusual, like we use a lot of contact mics, for example, mm. on like um, a lot of metal percussion, actually there's metal percussion in this song where we have aluminium sheets, which George was manipulating as you bend them. They produce different pitches and, Ooh, and also we, stuff like binaural microphones and things, you know, stereo. <laughs> the, my favourite part of this song is where it takes you from, so you're in that world of, you know, you can't quite grip on to what's going on. You're trying to figure out when those drums are going to come in and when the piano is going to come in and you're kind of being spun out. And then you get the really beautiful moment of it's all quite central and then suddenly it pans massively. So we're in the middle we pan out and it's the beautiful moment where you feel fulfilled and you're like, oh my God, this is great. So now we're really wide. Everything's wide and the, the melody's suddenly far left and far right. You've got the vibraphone over one side. Piano's in the middle, uh, something else over the left, guitar harmonics. And my favorite moment is that piano moment, which I, f well, we've, I forced upon you there. Oh yeah, here it is. That's my sort of ripple moment of, oh yeah, skimming stone summer. I know. remember you saying, play something like Righteous Sakamoto. Yeah. Actually. And so in response to George's request, you created that. Yeah, yeah, that's literally how it would happen. Or I would have been at the mic, he would have been in the, you know, behind the glass. Yeah. By bullying yeah. and cajoling. <laughs> I managed, I to, managed to force that out of him. What I like, though, is, is getting the two of you together in the room talking about it, because I love hearing the brotherly relationship between the two of you. You know, the way... One cajoles the other, the yeah. way one reacts to the other. But yet, because you know each other so well, you can also draw each other out in, in different ways. And you know, we all have to play dumb at different times, even just to ourselves, to allow something to happen. So yeah. you're able to be his foil and say, hang on a minute, Jack. 
no, what about this? Or and bring yeah. it down to a more rootsy, earthy. That isn't intentional. Way. It's no, not a. No, uh, but it's definitely the case. I mean, like especially with this song, because originally this song was there were never any drums in it as the song is now like on the recorded version it ends with like this big drum moment the electronic drums as i originally had it it just sort of petered out in sort of blandness but you're you were really insistent and i was very suspicious of the idea that it should end with drums oh yeah so i came up with this musical part which is you know spellbounding (laughs) no in fact that's your rhythm that your rhythm's the metal rhythm you might have even played that, you know. I mean, there, again, it's another one where there was lots of different things. You said it should end with like a breakbeaty rhythm. No, no, no. You not did. break. I, I was more for the I, I, the kick and snare rhythm. That might be how you remember it, but you told me yeah. it's got to end with electronic drums that are breakbeaty. Yeah. And like, I can play you a load of the variations that I made to try and get that right. Yeah. Definitely edit that out. <laughs> I'll be head up. That's no, the this, goal, this sounds, uh, this sounds uh, what? Sounds good. But then I remember tapping out on a table and being like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm coming to that. I'm oh, coming to that." So, I mean, this is quite a contrast. You know, th- th- this kind of percussion and these kind of sounds are quite contrast to what is found elsewhere on the album, but also within mm. this track, because obviously within ARP, we hear drums. You know, they're kind of buried within this, you know, and, uh, and they're quite, they sound... Ritualistic or... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing, like... Acoustic I, as well. You were more yeah, real. Yes, yeah, yeah. You had this idea of almost like drum and bass kind of thing. Well, that's how I yeah. interpret it. Maybe that isn't what you said, but that's how I interpreted what you said. And then eventually... We went round in circles and you said, no, that's wrong. We tried things like that. What are those metal bits? There's a few things. There's metal rods. And it's also on the snare is like an aluminium sheet. Right. And we made all that stuff, you know, metal cutters and nice sort of metal drumsticks, which I'm still playing with live. They're like a rod of steel with my own sort of handles. Right, well. Gaffer-taped handles, basically. And in terms of your musical educations... um, Zero. Zero completely for both of you. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I learned the guitar. I could probably play Jingle Bells still. We both did like a year or so of guitar lessons at school, like when we were seven or eight. Right. Because, I mean, because it's... From my memory part of your musical education is to do with your family in that your elder brother introduced you to yes yeah. you're 100% quite, quite right yeah. way out things quite early on you know captain yeah. beefheart i mean not that he's yeah, necessarily yeah. particularly way out but at I a very early a, age like he, eight or something you were being ex- exposed as it were to captain beefheart 100% he couldn't i couldn't be more happy to be yeah that was our brother. musical education was but your brother. mum was a friend she's or like, dr feelgood or yeah, something she was in with the feelgoods and tried to make them uh, Which is a kind of South End story. Yeah, you know, she, I mean, she made, she tried to make them a glam rock band, basically. Right. <laughs> she made them some glam rock suits, and they, they refused. <laughs> they didn't pay her for it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, in terms of that, yes, and a really, you know, lovely uh, mum is like she's great. She's just so let us do it, everyone. Art teacher. I realise now that like we were being looked after by the old lady down the road that definitely didn't have her marbles, things like that. You know, you look back and like, what the hell was going on? But yeah. She's absolutely brilliant. Do you know what I mean, Jack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But your actual musical education, apart from guitar lessons aged eight, 
for a year. Um, the rest you just kind of taught yourselves, having been exposed to different things and yeah, then yeah. thinking, oh, that's interesting. And then how do I do that? Yeah. Uh, kind of hands-on type thing. So say you score your music, Jack, yeah. but you taught yourself how to do yeah. that. Yeah, there was a computer at college that had uh, Sibelius on it, so I used to get on there at lunch, mm. the lunch and time. And at college, at what is this doing A levels? Um, yeah. Oh, you did, you did yeah. a A level in music technology. Yeah, uh, yeah. which was great because no one there was a studio like a studio thing there, and no one ever used it. It was always empty, so I just spend all my time there. Yeah, so that is musical education, isn't it? I guess. I guess yeah. it is. Yeah, but, but we didn't really get taught very much. You know, I was going to say like you know us playing music was really born out of you making electronic music was it so this not really but that's the that's what i remember being I, oh no i suppose yeah sitting and playing acoustic guitar yes what i Second. just want to do before i forget is play one more of these drum beats and then play the eventual one which is wrong but it's starting to get closer to it so i think i remember yeah. i played that to you and then I think you said that you like the sounds, but White it should noise. be a rhythm like this. And he tapped out a rhythm, which eventually was programmed into what is in the actual song, which is this. So George tapped out this rhythm. Yeah. On a drum kit. On a, t on a table. On, on a tabletop. Yeah. Using your hands or using these uh, metal just sticks? Just no, like this, Jack. No, make it like this, Jack. <laughs> doing that kind of thing and tapping right and then oh I think we probably have done yeah. snares and then and showing then me I think we went kicks. through the main rhythm and then you went through again and showed me where you think the snares should go yeah snares and kicks so this is adding the strings back in just to show where mm. what this is So we have some repeat questions that we always ask people. And, um, you know, you're in your own world, but what piece of advice would you have for any other aspiring musicians or producers? Or were there any particular pieces of advice that you received? Well, practical constraints are always the things that get me, but I think we've done everything we've done for so little. And as I said, DIY and by ourselves, I think anything is possible. Because I think on the outside it sometimes looks like a big illustrious project, but what we do is it's just me and you, really, isn't it? So you're avoiding the question, though. <laughs> Something that I think definitely, when I realised it, it really helped me. But I think I hesitate to give, try and give people advice because I think who am I to give people advice? But it raised the distinction between when you're working and when you're not working as much as possible. It's always on the off moments that all the best ideas come to me. I find. That way, all your spare time is kind of working for you and giving you ideas. Another thing is, if you find like minds, then uh, it's really, really valuable and cherish that and, and find those people and hold on to them because it's very rare, actually, to find people that um, share your ideas or your convictions or your obsessions. Yeah, so that could be somebody like Graham Sutton. Yeah, exactly. Or Andre, the uh, the conductor. Yeah, and um, Tom, yeah, somehow, yeah. who started with the band, the Sophie. Yeah. And obviously a lovely twin brother. Yeah. <laughs> is there we've talked a bit well quite a bit about a kit and your approach to it but is there anything that you particularly favor i mean you mentioned your fender roads is there any particular plug-in or something that you'd love uh, to use i would say building all those drums and we've always done that kind of thing with contact mics i really like all that kind of percussive stuff where we're 
drilling holes in cymbals and putting rivets in them or those elements I like. I like some of our drum kits with really small kicks and like mm. those things. So create, in effect, you're, you're creating instruments specific to your purpose according to yeah, yeah, like, the things yeah. that you want to achieve. Baffing around and eventually like trying and failing and then maybe some of it works out. But what's your favourite instrument? You like your Rhodes, no? You like a piano. I do love my Rhodes, yeah. I'm always disappointed you don't play the guitar more. I tried to give Jack a, a uh, still guitar, a guitar in the studio. The yeah, that's right. I mean, going back to your musical education. So, I mean, you did, you had some guitar lessons. You took music tech A-level, mm. Jack. What were you doing, George? Did you... I was like, I was more of a practical... I bought like a tape machine and we were making tape loops. George would be going to the kind of junk shop, music shop and buying like old speakers and building amps out of them and things like this. Right. We had one blow up once. It's like smoke and I'd built this thing. It's like, God God knows even what it was. Like speakers, like it looked like an amp, but it was not an amp. It looked like a kind of home stereo system that George has kind of rigged up so that you could plug like a guitar or a bass into it. About 20 minutes into the gig, it exploded and black smoke filled the venue. <laughs> and actually, that's the first guy who put out, Joe Daniel, who put out our first record, was at that gig and thought, oh, I love this is the band for me. <laughs> Excellent. So, I mean, but the two of you being together, even though you might be doing different things in terms of official studies, but exploring sound, making music together was something that you would always be at, was it or, or not? Yeah, yeah. Like we would. We sort of go to school. I always think that like people who took school very seriously, which I think is probably a good idea. Another good bit of advice, the youngsters. <laughs> but I never did, and I never, I just never thought it was relevant whatsoever to us. And it was actually all the stuff we were doing, like after school, we'd just like go and mess around with music yeah. and things. That was obviously what we were interested in. And yeah. um, thanks to our mum really for just well letting us have our mates around and play loads of music in a loft. If it was my house now. I'd be like, shut that. Like you can right. have that going yeah. on. Also, like when we we moved house and our dad, um, his original occupation was a shed builder when we were kids. And so he built us a shed, like his great masterwork shed, like for us to play music in when we were like teenagers. Apparently it was, um, it was like sound insulated, but somehow it managed to magnify the sound and amplify it. It was unbelievably loud. It's incredible. Like so the first instead of shield the sound, it just made yeah. it louder. Yeah, Brilliant. it's like inside a bell. And but actually that's, we recorded our first EP in that shed. Yeah. And then it rotted, and then we, you know... <laughs> it did, yeah. I had to re-roof like that the shit. Gear was, gear was ruined. Yeah. So um, and when you create your music, um, and obviously you do put on these big live performances, do you ever think about how a song will be performed live or how it will translate live? Does that have an impact on how you create? Not really. I think the, mm. the great advantage of studios or software is that you can confect impossible situations or impossible combinations of instruments or unfeasible combinations of instruments. So I think it would never make sense to me to constrain yourself by imagining how it might turn out live. Mm. However, that can be to your cost in some ways because then you think they come to play live and you've got a lot of other things to do and you have to reimagine it. But that's always been our way of going about it. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned mixing did you get the album finished and then mix it? Did you mix as you were going along? Did you go to a, a big studio to do it? What did you do? What did we do? I can't remember. Uh, we went to LA, this guy called Sonny DePerry, who has his own studio there. And um, he mixed most of it and then came back and did some tweaks and things, me and Graham right. in South End. But you actually went to LA specifically to mix the album. Yeah, it was the, che- the cheapest way of it doing it. It turned out yeah, to be yeah. cheaper to do that than for him to come to England. Because right, he had okay. his own studio. So. Yeah. 
He was a really good guy, a really nice guy. Why? Why? Sonny's amazing. Sonny was really good because he worked with. Did he work with Trent Reznor or something? Or he was like Trent Reznor's programmer, and he like he trained under Flood, who uh, like called it Depeche Mode. And all yeah, kind of yeah. Things. Had you heard things that he had worked with that you liked, which is why you went to him? Or how yeah. did you? I can't really remember actually. What I think we sent. A, he he would have done a track. He would have. We would have sent him ARP. Yeah. Maybe we did Infinity Five Rounds. It was difficult. Somebody would send it back and be like, "Oh yeah." He was recommended yeah. by someone to us. And um, we liked it. We liked the sound. Mm. Like good low end, sense of space and all that kind of thing. It's bizarre, mm. actually, in the sunlight. Eh? You know, that, the experience in the little of, white box. Of being in Every LA. day for a long period of time. 12 hours a day. 12 hours a it's day. It's a little cubicle in, uh, in LA. Like, but a part of LA that's sort of quite out. Like, it's like another light industrial area. So, mm. you know, yeah. out of town. Just quite a lot. It was a long, long days. Me trying to get that piano up in... Um, Infinity Five Friends, which I'll never let Jack live down. You'll never be satisfied until it's just deafening, <laughs> obliterating. Well, I wish we could hear it now with just that turned up to full. Well, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> um, this has been fascinating. It's been great. Yeah, thanks for having us. Have real, you a un- to... unravel the sounds of, of Inside the Rose in this way? And I mean, it's fascinating to hear how how these songs are created you know, from such different origins, you know, different inspirations. You know, that you, you keep yourselves open and, and draw on different opportunities, really, mm-hmm. to create, you know, from a dream through to happen chance to however it results. Yeah, it's been interesting for us to go and actually think, think about, about how it, it's yeah. done because I've kind of forgotten about it all, but thank you. We should end on a piece of music, either something that we've already played or another selection from Inside the Rose, just a little burst. Six? Yeah, I don't mind. Yeah, six is the final track. Yeah. The, um, okay. George, thank you. Jack, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks and, so much for having us. And this is six. It's these new Puritans from Inside the Rose. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Tape Notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.